I've been asking myself a question as we've been looking at this book of Acts, and that is, how did the early church go about making disciples? And that's where I've been so intrigued by this study in the book of Acts. Strip away all of what we think of as church and just go back to the first century church and how did they do that? Well, turn with me back to this book, to the fourth chapter of Acts, and let's get our latest installment of that understanding. If the book of Acts were a play then I think you would find in chapters 1, 2, and 3 the Spirit of God on center stage. In chapter 1, the Spirit is promised by the risen Lord. As He walks the earth some 40 days after His resurrection, He promises that the Holy Spirit will come. And He does. Jesus ascends. The disciples remain there in Jerusalem. In the second chapter, the Holy Spirit does come. And it prompts a sermon by the follower named Peter as he preaches to thousands of people on who Jesus is and their need to be forgiven of their sins. That Jesus died on the cross and was raised from the dead. Some 3,000 people become followers of Jesus at the end of Acts chapter 2. And then last week in Acts chapter 3, the Spirit leads these followers, Peter and John, to enter into the temple and to see a crippled man, to reach out to him. And the Spirit leads into performing a miracle and giving this man his balance and his strength back into his ankles and to his feet, and he is able to walk again. This, too, prompts a sermon of which he preaches on who Jesus is, this risen Lord. And you can mark this, loved ones, that whenever there is a work of God, it will be met with opposition. And so when we get to Acts chapter 4, 5, and 6, there is a competing force for center stage. There is the enemy himself who is opposing this wonderful work of God that we see in the first three chapters And ironically, in chapter 4, the chapter we'll cover this morning, the devil is using, of all people, the religious and moral elite, a group of people called the Sanhedrin, comprised of 70 moral and upright in their thinking, as well as the, the experts, the PhD of theologies in the first century. And I wonder for you, have you found this phenomenon yourself where it, where it just seems like you're getting traction in your Christian life? And finally, you're, you're getting some understanding and you're growing in your faith and your relationships with others are deepening and, and maybe uh, your relationships with others that you're sharing the gospel with are improving. And then suddenly it is met by opposition. Well, let us glean from the lessons here that we see in Acts chapter 4 of the same pattern. And what our aim to do this morning is just to look at Acts chapter 4, verse by verse. I'll give you five outline headings with the first one beginning in the first four verses called the arrest. Let's pick up our story where we left off last week. Peter and John had healed this man that was a crippled man. They had gathered together people that they had preached. Not everyone was for that, as we find out here in chapter 4, verse 1. Let us 
follow along as it reads. And as they were speaking to the people, the priest and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them. There are three different groups of people that come to Peter and John. It says here in verse 2, greatly annoyed because they were preaching or they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. One of these groups of people is called the Sadducees. And according to Luke chapter, pardon me, Mark chapter 12, verse 18, the Sadducees do not believe in the resurrection. And so they are annoyed when Peter and John are preaching to all these people about Jesus being raised from the dead. The Sadducees believe that when a person dies, they remain dead. And that is why they are sad. You see. Okay, you saw that one coming. I'm sure you did. Verse 3 says, And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. So they were so annoyed at this doctrine that Jesus had been raised from the dead that they actually apprehend them and put them into jail. And it is evening, so it's not enough time to gather the Supreme Court or the Sanhedrin at this time. So let us intimidate them. Let us put them in jail and allow them to think about what they've been teaching. But we'll see here, the gospel is opposed, but not hindered. Look with me at verse 4. It reads here, But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. This is astonishing in light of the opposition that they are experiencing as they are proclaiming this gospel message that Jesus has been raised from the dead as they're being dragged off the platform in handcuffs. People are coming to Jesus as followers by the droves. After the first sermon, there were 3,000 followers. After the second sermon, there are 5,000 men. Can we not include that that could also be ten to 15,000 people if they were married and had children? And so we are seeing the gospel and Christians and followers of Jesus expand. So here you have it. Now I want you to think with me for a moment. There is Peter and there is John. They're in jail overnight. And it was about two months ago. We're not exactly sure how long ago. But there was someone else who would stand before the Sanhedrin. And that was Jesus. And this is where Peter and John were to meet the next day. Now, where was Peter the first time we see this Sanhedrin gathering? As Jesus stood before the Sanhedrin, Peter was nowhere to be found. He had denied Jesus three times that evening. And now he will have a second chance. A second chance where he himself will stand before the Sanhedrin. And You have to remember how it went for Jesus. He was crucified. And as Peter and John stood in the cell that night, that had to be going through their minds that the same result could happen to them. Well, that is the arrest. Now let us consider the hearing. Or it's not really a trial. It's a hearing. Look at that verse 5. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, 
Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. The Sanhedrin was comprised of 70 different men. The president of that would be the high priest. They served as something like our Supreme Court or our Senate in which they were to oversee the religious affairs of the Jews at this time. They would have likely assembled in the southwest part of the temple. They would have seated in a large semicircle with the subjects, in this case, Peter, John, and the man that can now stand, who was at one time crippled, and they would have stood in a very intimidating way in front of all these different men. We see here that they have a question. Look with me at verse 7. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Never mind that we are rejoicing that this man that we used to pass entering into the temple that was crippled is now walking, not walking, he is leaping and dancing and praising God. They want to know, how did this happen? By what power, by what authority, by what name has this been done? And you might remember from the Gospels that Jesus was asked this question himself in Mark 11, verse 28. By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? The Holy Spirit empowers Peter to preach with boldness. Look with me at his answer here in verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them. Now this is significant We've been reading about the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts. And in God's providence, these words are here. How is the Holy Spirit going to demonstrate himself and his work here in this passage? It's going to be through boldness. He says in verse 8, rulers of the people and elders. If we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, and by what means this man has been healed, let it be made known to all of you, and to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders by which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There is this boldness that comes from Peter. And I remind you where he was maybe two months prior to this. He was scared. He had denied Jesus these three times. Now with his second opportunity, he stands in front of the Sanhedrin and boldly proclaims Jesus and identifies with Jesus. The Holy Spirit can give us boldness to preach His Word. There's an old Methodist preacher by the name of Peter Cartwright. During the Civil War era, he at one time lived in Tennessee, but because of the, the slavery issues, he wanted to escape the South, and he went to the North, and he pastored in Illinois. And he was known for proclaiming the truth boldly. Whatever God wants me to say, this is what I will say. One day the president, Andrew Jackson, was to attend his church. And before he arrived, the deacons kind of pulled him off to the side and says, Listen, preacher, we know that what you like to do is proclaim what God wants you to say. But we have the president here today. Perhaps you can just tone it down a little bit, huh? 
And so he listened to their words. And on that Sunday morning, Peter Cartwright went to his pulpit and got behind it. And as he stood, he looked out upon the congregation and he says, I understand that our president, Andrew Jackson, is here today. Our deacons have told me that they want me to guard my words, that I would not offend such a man. But I'm here to tell you that if Andrew Jackson does not repent, he will go to hell. (laughs) And that was my response as well. And all the congregation hushed and said, I cannot believe the boldness that our pastor has to proclaim such words. What will the president think? And at the end of the service, as the president was leaving, he extended his hand to the preacher. And he says, if I had a regiment of men like you, I could take the world with such boldness. But if you'll notice the boldness here, at first Peter is saying to them, an acknowledgement, rulers, if you're asking where this good deed come from, I'm telling you it's come from Jesus of Nazareth. This Jesus whom you crucified, this was the Sanhedrin that just months ago had stood and looked Jesus in the eye. And he has said to them, you have done this. And then he says, the very God whom you claim to worship, he's the one who raised him from the dead. And it says here that he is the stone that has been rejected. He is saying to the people, the Sanhedrin, you act as if you're building something. Well, I'm telling you the very material that you need to build on, you are not building on. You should be building upon Jesus, but you have rejected Jesus. My father, years ago, maybe 20 years ago, purchased an old uh, farmhouse in the southwest part of the state in Sauk County. And on that land was this old dilapidated barn that was about ready to fall apart. But on the exterior of that barn was that old classic farm wood. And people might come up and, and see that barn wood and say, why don't you just burn that place? Why don't you just get rid of that? It's an eyesore. Well, my dad took board by board of that old barn wood off and he used that in the interior of his, of his own little country home there. And that became a fixture, really a centerpiece of his home. And while others would have said, you need to get rid of that, you need to reject that, he said, no, I'm going to make that a fixture of my home. In the same way, this is what Peter and John saying, you ought not to discard Jesus, you ought to make him the center of your faith and of your life. And then in verse 12, that classic verse, maybe one of the most famous verses of all of Acts, is that there is no salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. This was spoken into a culture that is very similar to ours. A pluralistic society. In the first century, there was something called the Pax Romana. All that means is Romans' peace. And the reason the Romans had these 200 years of unprecedented peace was they offered tolerance to people. Tolerance as related to their religion. And so they would take over all these different areas and they'd say, you go ahead and worship whoever you want to worship. We're not going to build a war over this. And this is precisely the same uh, uh, culture that Peter is proclaiming these words into. It's a culture very similar to ours. You might have thought that this concept of coexist only came upon the scene when that bumper sticker came out. 
Well, I believe that bumper sticker was on Roman chariots in the first century. It's always been there. Despite this, Peter proclaims that there is only one way to God. There's only one way to heaven, and it is through Jesus Christ. This is a very unpopular message. It was unpopular in the first century, and it is unpopular today. In our day, in our culture, we think we have to work for everything that we get. And we pride ourselves on our accomplishment about how much work we put into something. But when it comes to getting right with God, it's not works, it's actually receiving a gift. If you look at the first book of the Bible, when the first man and woman sinned, God's prescription for that sin was not to double down and try harder and for every violation do two things that were good. It was to wait. Wait for a Savior. He will offer forgiveness of your sins. This was an unpopular message. It was also an unpopular Savior. The Bible says of this Savior that he was one who had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him, according to Isaiah 53.2. If one was just to look at the physical appearance of Jesus, there was nothing that would have drawn us to him. But he was God. He is man. And he came to live a sinless life or perform miracles and ultimately die a very unpopular death. There on the cross, tortured for our sins. And then he raised from the dead three days later. It was an unpopular message. It was an unpopular Savior, an unpopular death, and it was proclaimed by unpopular messengers. Here you have a couple of fishermen that are standing up in front of the PhDs of the society, telling them how they can get right with God. Paul specifically said in 1 Corinthians 1 that I do not come with eloquent words. I come proclaiming a Christ, a bloody Savior who has died for your sins, that you could be forgiven of them sins by receiving this, this gift that is presented to you. And this is the message. This is the message that Peter and John are proclaiming to the very Sanhedrin. Note this. Note this, that they are preaching the gospel to the Supreme Court of their day. They're proclaiming to anyone that they can listen, that will listen to them. So, so far you have the arrest, you have the hearing, and and now you have the warning or the deliberation. Let's look at the next part here in verse 13. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. I wonder what that was like for John and Peter to read later. As, uh, as uh, Luke had written these words and they're reading an account about what he thought of them. Yeah, these guys, they were uneducated and common men. All that means is they had no formal education. They could read. They were common men. They were not professionals. Verse, the next part of verse 13 says, And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. This was the distinguishing mark. They had been with Jesus. So they had some sort of a fragrance, a way of doing things that looked like Jesus. Last Sunday during our greeter time, um, Melody and the two oldest were up at winter camp, and so I had the three youngest. And, and during the greeter time, I'm over here 
shaking hands and, and greeting with someone. And then all of a sudden, I felt this little pull on my pants, and it was little Titus. And he said, hey, good morning, Dad. And I, I turn around and give him a hug, and he smells like his grandma. <laughs> she has a particular perfume that whenever our boys are around her, I know they have been with Vanna. And I, I embraced little Titus, and I said, you have been with Gran, haven't you? Well, he was sitting with Gran that particular morning. In the same way, these disciples had been with Jesus. And now the Sanhedrin can tell. There is something about these I know these guys. I've seen these guys before. And they're acting like Jesus. Jesus performed a miracle, and then he preached. These guys, God has worked in their life to perform a miracle, and now they are preaching it says here in verse 14, But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. My favorite word in this chapter is the word standing right there. Because 24 hours ago, this man was crippled, and now he is standing beside Peter and John as evidence of the work of God in his life. By the way, the word salvation and saving that we find in verse 12 is, is actually the same Greek word that can be used to restoring one's health, is also delivering them from eternal damnation. And so he is segued from the healing of this man to now proclaiming the good news to them. Verse 15 says, But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another. So they've ushered Peter, John, and also the crippled man out, no longer crippled, he's standing, And now let's talk. Look at verse 16. What shall we do with these men? For what a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them. And charge them not to speak or to teach at all in the name of Jesus. So here under this warning, they said we cannot deny that the crippled man was healed in Jesus' name. But we're going to threaten these people not to speak in Jesus' name anymore. What I find fascinating about their deliberation is that there was no mention at all about them investigating the resurrection. Wouldn't you think that that would be their job? If this is a doctrine that is being proclaimed to examine, has Jesus really raised from the dead? I believe they knew it. The Sanhedrin, by definition, were not going to embrace that. They were all about trying to stop this movement of Jesus. So they say to them, listen, we don't want you to talk about Jesus anymore. And here's their response in verse 19. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, You must be judged, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because the people, for all, were praising God for what had happened. The man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. Here's the response by Peter and John. We cannot help but speak of what we have seen and heard. There are instances throughout the scriptures 
where God puts such a burden on a person's heart, like Jeremiah, that it is a fire in your bones and you have to speak out. And this is precisely where Peter and John are. And this isn't the only case where we see some governmental leaders leading in some way only to have a follower of God not obey, but to obey God instead. You think of Exodus chapter 1 where we had these midwives. These Jewish women were told by the Egyptians to say, if there is a boy that is born, you are to kill that male child, that male baby. And the midwives would not do it. They would not obey this pagan government. We can see it in Daniel as well, where you are supposed, Daniel, to worship this Babylonian. And he would not, nor would his friends Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So, so far we have the arrest. We have this hearing. We have this warning. And now let's consider this time of prayer. Look at the next part of our passage, verse 23. When Peter and John and presumably this man that can now stand were released, they went to their friends. I like that. Wouldn't you? The first thing they do after facing this opposition, they get out of jail, they get out of this intense encounter with the Sanhedrin, is they get with their friends. And we're seeing this pattern as the Great commission is being obeyed, that it's being carried out through friendships. And it says here, they went with their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. Verse 24 says, and when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, and so they get together with their friends and they pray. And listen to their prayer. Sovereign Lord. The first words from their prayer are, Sovereign Lord, O God, you are above all. There is no one that can challenge your authority. You are the master. I understand what the Supreme Court has just told us, but we are going over their head to speaking to you in our prayer. And then they're going to say, Let us talk to this God who creates. Look at the next part. Who made the heaven and the earth and the sea, and everything in them. Oh, it's helpful for them to be reminded who they are speaking to. He is speaking to the one who has created all the members of these people on the Sanhedrin. He has also created the people that are there that time. Peter and John and all those disciples. And the third thing we see about this God, He's not only sovereign, He is not only the creator, He is also the one who reveals Himself. Look at verse 25 who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit. And now he's going to quote Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage, Gentiles rage, and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord, against his anointed. They quote Psalm 2. And in Psalm 2, you have kings and you have rulers that are against God. And so Peter and John are praying this because the Sanhedrin is against God. And they're using this as encouragement. And the final thing we see is they're just warming up in their prayer as they're filling their minds of who God is, is that God is a God of history. Look with me at verse 27. For truly in this city 
They were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and whatever your plan had predestined to take place. We lived in a time where you allowed Jesus to be brought into this world when Herod the Great was the ruler. And he tried to kill Jesus as a baby. You allowed him to to have a ministry in which Pontius Pilate was present as well. And he oversaw Jesus' crucifixion. And you predetermined all these events. You are a God who knows all about this stuff. Now that we've filled our mind with who you are, let us get to our request. Now, what do you think they're going to request? What do you think they're going to ask of God? Well, I know. For the election. And I'm all for praying for the election and all. But ironically, you don't see him praying for these Sanhedrins to be overtaken by Jesus-fearing disciples. Well, I I know. uh, let Let us pray that these Sanhedrin will change their mind and will not apply pressure on on the disciples anymore. This isn't what they pray. Look what it says here in verse 29. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. While you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of uh, of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Their prayer was, give us boldness to speak your word. So here you have it, the church. It's met with opposition it's even led to them, as they're beating, obeying Jesus, to be arrested. To have this kind of a hearing. To be warned. To gather together for prayer. And this leads, finally, to unity. And I'll just kind of read verses 32 through 37. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. No one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were given their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet as was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. This church was unified. They were unified. They had oneness of heart. They had a oneness in resources and a oneness and belief in the resurrection of Jesus. And I'm wondering, could they truly have been unified if they hadn't gone through all this opposition. I believe it was the opposition and and getting that challenging time together that caused them to rely on the Spirit, to, to experience the boldness that the Holy Spirit provided that led them to getting together and deepening their friendships, praying with one another to experience this unity. As I've been processing this book of Acts on my own, 
I have been asking that question. How did they disciple people? When you strip away all the stuff that we think of as church, how did they do it? We see that they just preached the gospel. They relied on the Holy Spirit. Consider Peter. Just months prior to this, he, he had virtually resigned. Now he is the spokesman for these followers of Jesus. The Holy Spirit has taken up residence and he is empowering Peter to lead. They faced opposition. They deepened their friendships and they prayed for boldness. Now as we close this portion of the service out, the wonderful thing about being informed by the Bible and just going verse by verse through a book is it can actually lead you in what you are to do as a church. I wonder if we couldn't just close by putting into practice what we see here. We see friends praying together. And they are praying for boldness. They are praying for boldness to go out and share the gospel. Now in this passage, the house was shaken. And may God shake our house. But, but what was unmistakable is that their faith and steadfastness was not shaken because the Holy Spirit had empowered them to go out and proclaim the gospel with boldness. So there's no song of invitation. There's no more announcements or anything like that. But I wonder if we can conclude our service today by having our own little prayer meeting, by getting together with a couple of people around us, three or four people, and just praying. Now, it's occurred to me that we might not know everyone, and we not maybe everyone in this room is even a Christian, and that, that could be really strange. And maybe as you get into your little group, you could say, my name is so-and-so, and we've been asked to pray today, and I'm wondering, are you, are, are you a Christian? And if not, do you have any questions about what it is to be a Christian? And if so, I'd be happy to answer We've been instructed to pray today. Let's close our service by praying that the gospel would be clear and that we would proclaim the gospel with boldness. If you're new to the faith and you're not even sure how you would communicate the gospel, there is a whole rack of tracks right out by the the, the main entrance as you came in or as you go out. Feel free to grab a few of these pamphlets and you can hand those out this week as the Lord would lead you to be bold in your witness to sharing the gospel. So that's all I'd like you to do today. There's kind of an open-ended close to our service where we're just going to gather in prayer. And once your group is done praying, you may feel free to go out and to, to go out and share this gospel in your community. Let's pray together, okay? Once you form a group of three or four, maybe as many as five, and just take some time to pray. And this is how we'll close our service today.